I'm so glad you're joining us for this episode of Street Soldiers. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. You can find me and follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, at Lisa Evers. And you can also catch up on all of our Street Soldiers episodes, free of charge, both TV and radio, on LisaEvers.com. Now, in this episode, we are talking about the tragedy in Parkland, Florida, the mass school shooting. We've heard never again after so many of these mass shooting tragedies, but we've never seen such a focused, immediate response like we are witnessing right now with the Stoneman Douglas High School students and the, the other survivors. Even as they were attending memorial services and funerals for the 17 students and staff murdered in the school, they launched a campaign to end gun violence once and for all, taking on the NRA and politicians who get money from them. They want to know why a 19-year-old former student too young to legally buy alcohol in Florida, was able to legally buy an AR-15 assault rifle, among many other questions. Now, there are many questions about this entire tragedy and what kind of country we really are or we're becoming. Let's find out what our panel has to say right now. Joining me is uh, Patrick McCall. He's a CEO of the McCall Risk Group and also a security consultant. Pat, great to have you with us on the show. Thanks for having me, Lisa. Thank you. Also with us is Dr. Darren Porcher. He's a former NYPD lieutenant, a law enforcement analyst and a criminal justice professor. Darren, great to have you with us. Thank As you. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Also with us is Dr. Randy Sconiers. He's a clinical therapist. He's owner of New Steps Counseling Services and founder of the Mental Hop Program, a mental health program using hip hop. Randy, great to have you with us. Thanks, Lisa, for having thank, me. Thank you so much. Darren, I want to start with you. When you look at this tragedy, we've heard before so many times, never again, never again, and yet it keeps happening. Why does this keep happening? Well, oftentimes, one of the first things that I hear is, you know, first my heart goes out to the victims in Florida. And one of the things that we look at is we look at what happened in Sandy Hook um, just a couple of years ago with the Adam Lanza situation. And then now we translate that same experience of gun violence to what happened in Florida. One of the first things that I see is people use gun control as an antiseptic to possibly decreasing um, the violence in schools in connection with firearms use. But the truth of the matter is there's a far more comprehensive strategy that's involved. We need to look at a lot of the environmental aspects such as um, socioeconomics, mental health, and education. We want to triangula triangulate those three components to come up with a more plausible solution. As so you're saying gun, we really don't gun, know uh, why. Gun reform. Are you, so, so basically you're saying we really don't know why no, this No, I happens. disagree. I think that we do know. The problem is it's become such a partisan issue, whereas you have op opposing views from Democrats and Republicans. And when we look at legislation that's being introduced, it's making it more of a problematic situation. Let me talk about the students, first of all. Uh, Dr. Randy, you work with students. You work with students who have gone through various types of trauma, especially in our urban communities. What kind of effect does going through something like this have on somebody who's 14, 15, 16 years old as, as many of these students are? Well, first of all, I want to send my condolences to the, to the students and the victims as well. And right away, what you start to see is this um, sorrow that's taking place. The kids become hypervigilant and they actually become more sensitive to uh, some of the traumas that they're facing. And in this case, we had that fight or flight reaction. And these kids are responding by fighting back. They want change. So what we'll see is it impacts the kids that were directly in the classrooms, but kids that went to schools in neighboring areas and also across the country. Because social media, this, this case has kind of 
taken hold and the kids are scared. I really believe that. And then in terms of the reaction, because there are some people, even though I think personally it's totally inappropriate to judge how somebody else grieves or mm -hmm. deals with mm -hmm. a trauma, they did come under fire by some people in the media and on social media saying, why are they becoming so active and doing all of this in between funerals for their friends and their mm -hmm. classmates? Is that, what? what's your assessment of that? Well, there's stages of grief, right? So one of the stages of grief is anger. So what you see in that anger is really a, a, a reflection of really was passion. These kids are passionate and they want change. They're tired of these issues that are taking place. So it's not it's not abnormal to see kids respond in that kind of way. I think what you're seeing is it's a, it's a movement of the kids doing it collectively. And I think that's what's kind of taking people And really off. touching pe uh, people's hearts and their oh, consciences, yeah. I think. Eloquent and talking and speaking, you know, being on television shows and giving their perspectives in a really uh, intelligent way. So a lot of people it's, are It's having an these. impact. Definitely. Pat, we always talk about, the. this always comes back to the guns. And once again, it's a, an assault-type rifle or an AR-15 semi-automatic. Stop me if I'm incorrect here. And it's the same type of gun that is not really used for self-protection, is not used for hunting, is not used for any lawful activity except to kill as many people as possible in the shortest amount of time. Am I, am I right about that? I agree with you. I think, uh, you know, I'm pro-guns. Um, I support it. However, I, I firmly believe uh, that there's no reason a 19-year-old, a 30-year-old, a 50-year-old um, has a need for an AR-15. Uh, there's no legitimate need uh, other than some targeting, pra uh, targeting practice. Um, it, it's different for me in my line of work, uh, security. Um, you know, it's a requirement. It's a, it's a tool, uh, being a handgun or, or a gun for certain types of work. Uh, but a lot of these other rifles uh, that are out there and a lot of these other guns that are out there, they serve no legitimate purpose. And then in terms of the availability of it, because there, the argument has been like, why should, why should a 19-year-old be able to legally buy an AR-15 like you would go buy a pair of sneakers? Well, that's the problem I have as well. So Florida, basically, three days you walk into a store, you purchase a handgun, you've got to wait three days for an approval. Um, this gentleman could, could, in theory, have walked into a store, purchased his gun in as little 60 seconds. Uh, a background check, as they call it, came back, authorized him to then walk out of the store. So within minutes, he walked out of the store with an AR-15, but he couldn't walk out with a handgun. So there's some troubling uh, issues there. So it was even easier to get that than just a regular handgun. Absolutely. With, within a matter of minutes, he was able to purchase this, this firearm and, and walk out of the store. And why is that? Can you help us understand what the, the gun lobby rationale I mean, the, the, the gun laws vary state by state. Uh, obviously, as we know, New York is, is very strict. Uh, a lot of states like Florida, Arizona, uh, Vermont, Arkansas are very lenient. Uh, a lot of states don't even require you to have a permit to purchase the gun. It doesn't require you to even register that gun. Um, and a lot of times we see those guns ending up in, in other states where the laws are a little bit more, more strict. And, and a lot of the guns used in crimes in New York City, the NYPD tells us, come from these other states. But Darren, in terms of the accessibility of it, why do we even need these guns and these AR-15s or these assault rifles in our society? Well, that's been a that's a question people want. That's been a subjective, subjective point that's been come up for years and years and years on end. Um, the truth of the matter is, as Patrick, my counterpart, mentioned, that you do have people that may choose to use this for target practice. You do have collectors that may deem to own this. You may also have people that may want to use this as a line of self-defense in their homes. Um, so it's really very difficult for me to assess as to why. So people wait, have you, it. you're going to be sleep. You're sleeping. You hear a sound no, but, downstairs, but, and but, you're going to pull out the well, well, set think, up the tripod pod and pull out the sniper I gun think, and sure. I think people I mean, have a right to protect themselves in the society uh 
police departments, I want to say in law enforcement, are not affording the public the protections that they feel that they need. But at the same token, these weapons are now emitting from not just the home, but they're getting into schools, they're getting into public facilities, and they're causing massive carnage. So now we have to look at what is the concept of law enforcement, or I want to say the federal government, doing to protect us Well, as, I want to talk citizens. about that. I want to talk about the federal government. I also want to talk about the students and the kids and the impact, and, and some of the schools are hiring armed guards. We're going to talk about that. This is Street Soldiers. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. We'll be right back. Yo, this is Shaggy, and this is Street Soldiers with Lisa Evers. Real issues, real politics, real people, only on Hot 97. Shug it up. Welcome back to Street Soldiers. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. We're talking about the Stoneman Douglas High School massacre and where we go from here. Joining us for this conversation is Patrick McCall. He's the CEO of the McCall Risk Group and a security consultant. Pat, great to have you with us. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Also with us is Dr. Darren Porcher. He's a former NYPD lieutenant, a law enforcement analyst, and a criminal justice professor. Darren, great to have you As with always us. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Also with us is Dr. Randy Sconiers. He's a clinical therapist. He's owner of New Steps Counseling, and he's also the founder of Mental Hop, which brings mental health to the hip-hop generation. And thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Lisa Fan. We really appreciate it. Pat, explain the AR-15 to us. Are these guns made in the United States? Yes, they are. And the, they're automatic or semi, what is the difference between semi-automatic and automatic and where did these guns come from? So basically the M16 was originally designed for the military uh, as a fully automatic weapon, the AR-15, I'm going to kind of call it as a, a spin-off uh, civilian use uh, that is semi-automatic. And then when, when they say semi-automatic versus automatic, in terms of damage it can do or bullets, what is uh, the difference? I, I, obviously both guns can, can do, uh, you know, a lot of damage. Uh, Semi-automatic basically requires a, a trigger pull each time, opposed to a fully automatic. Basically, you just pull the trigger once and, and hold it down. And bullets just keep coming out? Correct. As many bullets as you have in the magazine? Correct. Up to about how many? Uh, it depends. 30-round magazines, um, sometimes box-fed, uh, can shoot even more. So so it's conceivable that this, this suspect in this Parkland uh, massacre, he's pulling the trigger every time Correct. he's firing mm. on the AR-15. Darren, yeah. in terms of the guns... Why do we even need that type of a gun in, the, in, in a quote-unquote civilized society? Well, I'm speaking as a prior Army officer, and while I trained in the military, we used, what we, refer, we used an M16, which is a fully automatic version. And it's really interesting, and I understand the dynamic of an 18-year-old being able to possess a weapon, because we as a country, we draft people to come in and shoot and train with an M16 weapon. But then, at the same token, we, these people leave the military, and they should have a right to acquire the weapons that they've used in the military. But at the same token, there needs to be provisions in play. There needs to be an aspect of gun control. We need to have backgrounds checks. We need to have a mental health check. And there needs to be an overall assessment of those, of those people. Now, I give you a contrasting comparison. We, take, we, we look at gun control in a place like White, Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And then we look at a place like Chicago, Illinois. You have the toughest gun control laws in Chicago. However, in a place like Jackson Hole, Wyoming, you have very loosely centered gun laws. So we look but at why But it's a totally, you can't no, even, no, 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 it's a no, totally it, it different no, lifestyle. But, but the issue And the is, population, no, there's no, out, not even a comparison. And how do they the get issue the is, it's a systemic, well. it, it's, a, it's a systemic cultural issue. That population has to understand, because let's say hypothetically we remove all guns. You're not, in no way, shape, or form, is it going to decrease the homicide rate? I don't think anybody's rate. saying remove give, all guns. Well, let me give you an example. We look at England. England and the same holds true with New Zealand. They put in these strict gun control laws. However, the homicide rate did not come down. What people did was they, retrofu they, they, they retrofitted 
other aspects, and they still kill people. So it goes back to the ideology. It's the mindset. And so when I mentioned... But no other the, country has the type of level of mass shooting. Randy, weigh in on this. But yeah, you gotta, I, we, are, we have the third largest population in the world. China's number one with 1.4 billion. India's number two with 1.2 billion. Right. And we are number three with, with 360 million people in the United States. So that is a very um, valid reason why our numbers are as high why, as Why? Because we have a lot of people? We have a lot of people, and we got a lot of guns here, too. But there's a lot of guns. Yeah, I think I think it has to do with us having too many guns and, and a perpetuation of violence in this country where we use violence to resolve issues all the time. So as the more guns that we have, that's the go-to method in a lot of times to resolve conflicts, unfortunately. And it stops at the t it starts at the top. So it trickles down to our kids as well. And a lot it's of times more of a social issue. I, not to cut Boy, you let off, me, but let me just, the social dynamics of this country dictate that, hey, look, when you have a problem, you utilize violence to extinguish what your issue is. And that's when I mentioned earlier about the three components, education, mental health, and socioeconomics. Well, let, the well, education piece is very important, and I'm going to let you lead let, back Let me talk a lot about the mental health piece, because I, I do want to talk about education. Yep. We're talking about gun education and also safety education yep. as well, but let, let's talk about the mental health piece. We look at this suspect, this 19-year-old suspect. People look at him and go, you could just tell by looking at him, even though most mug shots are pretty, you know, bad to begin with. Sure. And, and just, you know, it's the least flattering picture of the person ever and probably the worst, one of the worst moments of their life. Mm -hmm. He looks disturbed in the mm -hmm. picture. He just, he just looks, he just doesn't look like he's in his, mm -hmm. he just doesn't look like he's there, like totally detached in any picture. So is there a certain profile, you know, we, we saw with Sandy Hook, that shooter, he was very detached from, from society. He was mm -hmm. isolated. He was binging on very, the most violent video games that were out at the time. He would have never is received there, the weapon. His mother trained him, Adam Lanza's mother trained him how to fight that weapon. He in no way, shape, or form had the ability to acquire a weapon. Right, legally. but I'm talking about the mental health profile. So is, is there a sure. mental so health he profile? So he illegally used that weapon. So mental health is not a direct correlation with obviously going and shooting up schools. So there's people, and that, I want to say that right off the bat. Right, because there's plenty of people that have mental, that health, mental health issues, issues that, that are do not this. violent. That's right. But so, there, what about that small percentage, which is a minority, right? Well, that small that are violent. That small percentage, that's where we need those safeguards. I think there was a lot of balls that were dropped. He was labeled as being low risk. So when you have a mental health issue along with having firearms, how can he be low risk? Right away, he should have been labeled as being high risk. But right? would any any of his issues have shown up on any kind of background check? Because aren't those records system, confidential? Well, yeah, they're similar to your health records, right? We keep those those right. records confidential you, as well. you got to also look at the external pieces. Law enforcement dropped the ball. The FBI had a tip back in January that they should have executed on. However, Did they had this ridiculous... 20 calls to the local however, sheriffs, at least. Well, just, just from the federal perspective, the FBI dropped the ball. They were supposed to farm this information out to the, uh, to, to the Miami office. It didn't effectively get back to the agents on the ground to get that done. In addition to that, as you mentioned, Lisa, the local PD had upwards of 20 to 30 calls. There were cases of domestic violence and why it just totally blows my mind. Just based on the domestic violence calls alone, that weapon should have been removed from that household. So it was law enforcement that dropped the ball. Pat, what, what's your take I on that? I also want to touch on that. Uh, out of those 20, 30 calls, I know a social worker was brought out by the police department on several occasions, um, spoke with uh, the defendant uh, several times, and within a matter of minutes deemed him to be okay. 
Um, I, I don't think that's a fair assessment that a social worker, within a matter of a few minutes speaking to an individual, uh, can deem him to be okay. Um, and as Darren pointed out, I, I believe, in my professional opinion, those firearms should have been immediately removed, uh, whether these t- domestic violence uh, you know, was founded or unfounded, uh, just based on the number of calls, uh, the allegations that were being made. Uh, the police, the local police department should have taken immediate action. But also, you, you work with the schools, and you're consulting some schools about safety now. In terms of, and, and I've, I've seen it from the news what happens mm-hmm. in, in the tri-state area here in New York, and that if there's even a hint, even like an innocent, like, fifth grader making some kind of threat against other students, that is taken so seriously. They're, they go on lockdown, evacu- you know, the school is evacuated. They take it very seriously. I don't understand why. There was a YouTube, you know, there were the YouTube comments. There was the, you know, the, these tips that went to the FBI. Why wasn't that taken seriously? Uh, they have again, a thousand uh, agents in the Miami office. I think it also relates to, you know, to, to, the, uh, to the area. Um, as you said, I'm working with several districts. Is this upper middle class area? Explain uh, that for us. I think, like I said, from, from my experience working with several districts here on Long Island, um, you know, they, they take things very seriously. Uh, they want to obviously err on the side of caution opposed to letting something go. I feel that some of these other districts might not have the proper consulting or, or might not be informed. Um, they kind of brush things off or, hey, I'm going to report it to so-and-so. Uh, no follow-up is done to make sure that, you know, the next person who was reported to actually followed up on I believe, the, like, like Darren and said, And there was the no was visit, dropped. right? There was no visit by call anybody what, anywhere. What you, call it whatever you want. Except the social worker. It. They dropped the ball. Mm-hmm. That's what happened. Period. End of story. They dropped the ball. I have a doctorate degree that focuses on school violence. And one of the things is I conducted a very intensive study on what perpetuates this violence in schools. And what I found is it, it, there are numerous components. You have the police. I want to say law enforcement. You also have the educators. And what happens in many instances, there's far more violence that exists in the schools than we know about. The educators go out of their way to suppress the violence in these schools because they don't want to be judged by the annual violence report because if that island if that annual right. violence report introduces that this uh, this high number of violence is in play they'll the first thing they'll do is they'll remove the top executive which is the principal whereas you have the other's perspective which is the police or the law enforcement side of the house they're looking to make arrests and things to that effect so you have this acrimonious relationship between the two and what happens is these stats are suppressed and the violence goes up This kid, on many instances, people said that he was bullied, he was socially inept. I don't know. In no way, shape, or form does that give you a license to go out and kill people. But what it does tell me is it was a harbinger for looking into this and possibly quelling these disturbances. And and somebody besides a social worker should have gone to visit. And go on and on and on. And I'll tell you another thing about that school. A lot of people say armed guards, so on and so forth. They had an armed resource officer that was working at that location. There was an armed police officer that was assigned to that school. But the problem was there was a manning issue. They didn't have the proper personnel. One officer in no way, shape, or form was capable of providing security for that part, that complex in its entirety. So as a result of that, all of those kids suffered. Well, we're going we're gonna to talk about that more. Uh, this is Street Soldiers. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. We'll be back right after this. Hey, what's up? This is your girl, Sierra, and this is Street Soldiers with Lisa Evers. Real issues, real politics, baby, and real people only on Hot 97. Welcome back to Street Soldiers. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. We're talking about the Stoneman Douglas High School tragedy and what comes next. Joining me for this conversation is Patrick McCall. He's the CEO of the McCall Risk Group and also a security consultant. Pat, great to have you with us. Thanks for having me, Lisa. Thank you. Also with us is Dr. Darren Porcher. He's a former NYPD lieutenant. He's a law enforcement analyst and a criminal justice professor. Darren, great to have you with us. As always, a pleasure. Thank you. 
Also with us is Dr. Randy Skyniers. He's a clinical therapist. He's the owner of New Steps Counseling, and he's also the founder of Mental Hop. It's a program that uses hip hop to encourage mental health among young people. And uh, Dr. Randy, thank you so much for being with Thanks, us. Thanks, Lisa. L let me ask you this. In terms of the assessment mm -hmm. of the suspect, of the this gunman, mm -hmm. His, he was, there were a lot of encounters. There mm -hmm. were social workers there. There mm -hmm. were calls to the police department. From a mental health perspective, what point does it stop becoming a red flag and it becomes like a 911, like an intervention, something has to be done? Well, there were several factors. Uh, this young man started cutting um, at the uh, breakup with his, with his girlfriend. He also was diagnosed with depression, ADHD, and autism as well on top of some challenges in terms of domestic violence. So when you do a psychiatric screening, we send kids out to the hospital or you have to go to the hospital, they have to be screened. That um, screener actually asked uh, certain questions in terms of being a danger to self or others. Now that screening is not always you know, it could be different for each clinician in terms of how they feel. So and it's that's more a subjective? It's a, a little bit more subjective and I think that's a problem in itself. But even before that, there's a problem in the education system in terms of stigma around mental health. So, because if you heard a lot of the kids afterwards, they said they could sense something wasn't right. And that's because no one wants to speak out because you don't want to hurt the person's feelings, you don't want to judge them. But if we can make mental health, just like if you had a broken leg or you had something wrong with you, we would talk about it without feeling like you're judging someone. And I think that's where we have to get back to that education piece, where mental health is something similar to our physical health. It can't be something that we talk about after a shooting. It needs to be something that so we let me, talk so about. So let me make sure I'm understanding. That we so talk about so, all so the what time. you're saying is this assessment of some of a student who can, of, of a, a teen or even an adult, but we're talking about the school situation. This assessment of a student can be totally subjective on the part of whatever clinician is doing it, depending on whatever their bias is. If they have an anti-law enforcement bias, you're supposed they to don't check want to have the biases. child criminalized. You don't want the child criminalized. Experience. How much experience do you have as a clinician doing the, doing the screening? All those all those things are important. But this thing is like an assessment line let's call it what it is they get people in 10 minutes and they get them out one person comes in what's your issue okay you're looking to kill yourself no all right next we push him out the next person comes in That's this is not a byproduct the case. but this is the byproduct of the HMOs this is I, I'll tell you as a police That's officer in the NYPD I can't tell you how many people that I, we, I brought into these emergency rooms that we saw as as emotionally disturbed persons that could hurt that somebody in, that, that these could. are people that for whatever the case may have been we bring them in, they go in for a 10-minute quick assessment, and, and then they go on. The only way that you can conduct a credible assessment of someone from a mental health perspective is you need to watch them in their environment. And that's not what's happening. It's just merely a question and answer block, and you get them moving forward. But, Pat, what about this? Because there's no, it, it's, I mean, we always come back, even, there's, there have been so many issues over the last couple of years where there's been a very, a very significant mental health component, mm -hmm. and there's no real uh, c consistent, mm -hmm. reliable reliable intervention strategy except for people to call 911 and then police arrive on the scene not knowing what they're walking into not not knowing if the person has a butcher knife as we've seen a gun mm -hmm. you know whatever in these kind of situations what do you think about this fact that these clinicians can just make these these subjective assessments
investments. I, I think it's also a training piece. Um, you know, the fact that matter is, uh, as I went back to the original analogy, uh, 10 minutes, uh, as Darren said, sitting down with somebody, um, you know, basically uh, a lot of times these people are going to tell you what you want to hear or what they need to, to get out of that office. And they um, kind of know if they've already been through it, right? They're, 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 they're going to roll with things. the punches, go through, you know, they're not going to say certain things. Uh, as Randy said, they're going to basically tell you what you want to hear and they're going to move on. And a lot of times we hear about these, you know, warning signs. Oh, well, this is a warning sign. And it goes back to people not reporting it and not following but up. But every and, warning sign was here and people did call and it's like the system the, the, it's like the the system the way it's it exists it's right now just I don't handle it want to designate someone as a danger in the back of the clinician's mind they say they understand it look you know what if i designate this person as a high risk or a danger to the community it's really going to set shockwaves through this person yeah. or, or, or yeah, but it's no, common. I, disagree. And, I disagree and, with that and, well this is i mean this is your assessment sure. and that's fine but the truth of the matter is it's happening and look at what we look at what's occurring as a result of it the shooting that happened here in florida if this if we had the right people in play mm -hmm. and the right thing was done this could have been happened Randy, so we look Law enforcement and the clinicians, and they failed us as a society. Randy, I, I think social workers, clinicians, for the most part, they want to do well. And if they feel like this young man was going to obviously do something that was going to harm somebody, how does it help hurt them not to say that that person is a, a danger to themselves or others? I've done it before, and I do it because it's about them, but it's about the greater good. If this person goes out and commits something like that, I think about how that clinician must feel Have as you well. had a client or a patient oh, that, that was violent? Or, yes, I had to. Or, or maybe I, they grew up in violence and they it became, you know, not to, to blame them if they're a minor, but, you know, kids that grow up being subjected to violence often, you know, can turn that way. They definitely can. There's been times where kids can grow up in those environments and they don't. You have to look right. at each individual case with, a, with a, a special lens in terms of the factors that they're experiencing at that moment. But right now in 2018 in New Jersey, if you had if you had a student that had the similar kind of background that that we saw with this suspect, the domestic you know the domestic violence had been like you said cutting cutting himself, yep. and then add on to it is an owner of an AR-15. Without question, we would have definitely uh, submitted him or. or pushed him to get screened and also those weapons would have been an indication that something further needs to be done like remove the weapons from access of, of this person And as a mental health professional is there a mechanism do you alert the court do you you know who do you who do you give that signal to or what call do you make or what email do you send so to say this teen is this teen has access to firearms in the home and he's got going through very serious issues right now and I and concern for his safety and the safety of the people around them. That's when it's a partnership between the clinician and the, the police department. You have to get both entities involved at that point. We don't touch the weapons, obviously, but we definitely make the calls to the police department to say, even if we have to go out to the home, they'll assist us and come out with us, or they'll go out before we even come in. But I do in-home services where we go into the home. Oh, wow. Yeah, and we ask those questions, and we see them in their environment. That's important, but we look at what happened a couple of years ago in Aurora, Colorado. James Egan Holmes, right, the movie that Batman it. premiere, we had the same exact situation. Dr. Fenton did an assessment on James Egan Holmes, and the same thing happened. Mm -hmm. This was somebody that had a, a trove of, you know, of these semi-automatic weapons. He was someone that exhibited these, um, the, I, I don't want to say off, but the, a, a mental background, a mental health background that was negative. Mm -hmm. She didn't do what was necessary. He goes in, he shoots up the, mo the movie theater, and then it 
comes back and the clinician had this information. And so it goes back to what are these clinicians doing? And the truth of the matter is, I think it's more of a societal issue, whereas we need to address these issues from a societal perspective here in this United well, States. Well, mental, because, you know, you do the because, simple math. Mental health issues if plus we know, guns because equals if a we bad pull, problem. Because if we pull the guns, people are just going to use, they're going to retrofit other means of killing people. And we need yeah, to attack. Yeah, but you can't kill that many people that Look fast. Look at what happened well, to Nice. A person ran over with that truck 90 people right, with in car. one shot. So it goes back to what is the mindset? We need to retro, we need to retrofit our minds here as Americans. As this is a problem. And what I use is we look at the tobacco campaign. How many people smoked cigarettes back in the 70s and 80s? And then we, they put out this vigorous attempt to get this information no, out to look educate. At but what happened is what they did was they educated the public. And now you have we, okay, we've heard a precipitous drop I in come smokers. Back, okay, but I want to come back to this point where it seems like in in, in your situation and the 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 jurisdictions and the places that you're working, there is that open dialogue between mental health professionals like yourself mm -hmm. and the police department. Pat, you consult and work with a lot of different police departments, particularly in suburban areas. Is that the case? Um, I, I think a lot of uh, a lot of them do do a good job. I feel that the training is, is lacking. A lot of times, when a patrol officer might come out to a domestic situation or a situation involving uh, somebody who might have a mental issue, um, and it's uh, a training piece where, oh, what, what do we do? Um, well, the people at the hospital said he's fine. All right, now we take him back. And, right. and as Darren pointed out before, um, you know, bring him in for, for a psychiatric evaluation, and a lot of times they don't really put a hold on it. They evaluate him over the course of maybe uh, an hour, two hours, three hours. Um, but I feel uh, an in-depth study uh, must be done. I'm not saying 30 days, but you know, speaking to somebody for a few hours or checking in on them while you know they're, they're basically sitting in a hospital bed uh, isn't a fair interpretation of what's really going on. And if somebody's in crisis and they have these, I mean, the, that's the other piece of it. Yeah. It's like they're in, they're going through crisis or whatever they're going through, whether it's temporary or it's been going on for a couple months. They and have access to the weapons. That's that's the part to me that just seems so crazy. The police department here in the NYPD they use what we refer to as domestic incident reports. Whenever the police, whenever someone has a weapon that's legally owned in a residence, the uh, the police officer responding automatically knows they'll receive an alert. And what they'll fill out is something referred to as the domestic incident report. Right. If a domestic incident report is filled out for someone that's a gun owner, that gun owner is respond. That officer is responsible for removing those weapons from that individual. So that domestic in, that the domestic incident database should be something that should be national. It shouldn't Accurate. just be a localized issue that we have here it in New York City. It should be something too, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Would that, would that make you more comfortable dealing with some of the situations? Yeah, I think because we don't have a lot of uniformity across the state So in terms of how we handle these particular situations. If anything else, if we can get that dialogue going and, and work on that, that would be something I think could at least help prevent some of the some of these um, issues from happening. In a, in a have you had cases where you've had to go, you know, where you've had to have the, you said, have the police go there with you because mm -hmm. of a concern about your safety or the safety of the people inside? Yeah, so we always ask questions before we go out. So one of those questions is, are there any weapons in the home? Now, clearly somebody could say that they have one or they don't. Most of the time, people are honest. You know, say there's a weapon in the home. At that point, we will, if we feel like it's necessary, we'll be accompanied by a police officer when we go out. Because we have to meet people in their homes, and sometimes we're meeting people who are mentally unstable or in a crisis state. 
Um, and at that point, we want to make sure we ensure safety for everybody. For everybody yeah. involved. All mm -hmm. right. The, uh, this is Street Soldiers. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. We'll be back right after this. What it do? This Kevin Gates. And right now, I'm kicking it with Lisa Evers. Welcome back to Street Soldiers. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. We're talking about the Stoneman Douglas High School massacre. Why did it happen? And how can we prevent it from happening in the future? Joining us for this conversation is Patrick McCall. He's the CEO of the McCall Risk Group. He's also a security consultant. Pat, great to have you with us. Thanks for having me, Lisa. Thank you. Also with us is Dr. Darren Porcher. He's a former NYPD lieutenant, a law enforcement analyst, and a criminal justice professor. Darren, great to have you. Thanks for having me. Also with us is Dr. Randy Skyniers. He's a clinical therapist. He's owner of New Steps Counseling Service, and he's also the founder of Mental Hop. It's a program that uses hip-hop to encourage mental health among young people. Randy, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for us. having me, Lisa. Let's talk about solutions. Pat, some schools are putting armed guards in the schools. What do you think about that? I think um, I think a big thing is is communication. Um, a lot of schools are trying to be proactive uh, at this point, so adding armed guards, uh, smart cameras, uh, door locks, um, and other security protocols to try to combat um, any potential uh, you know incidents. What do you think about the armed guard idea? I think it's a smart idea. Unfortunately, it's a time of uh, you know that we're in, um, whether it be a school shooting or another sort of disturbance. Um, I think it's important if the people are trained properly. I think training uh, is an important element of that. Darren, what do you think about the armed guard idea? Remember, there was an armed guard in this school when this happened. So apparently the armed guard didn't work. I think you need the proper amount of personnel there. So you need to look at the schematic of personnel in comparison to the security that you have on the ground. That's the security solution to ensuring that you have this public and um, the school is protected accordingly. One of the things that we look at um, just in terms of solutions is this could have all been avoided if the people at the front door just closed it because the assault happened in the parking lot. It's, he started shooting in the parking lot and then he advanced to the school. The people that were at the front door, if they would have closed the door, he wouldn't have got in. These schools have thick, large doors. He wouldn't have been able to penetrate. So they it let that him way. in. They let, he he basically shot his way in because everyone was kind of caught with the deer in the headlights look right. because of what was happening outside. Right. Where they should have executed on a on a lockdown strategy, and that didn't happen. But when you asked about with some recommendations, the mental health thing is key. There needs to be that dialogue on that connection between law enforcement and the practitioners and the education. As I was mentioning earlier, as we get out this education campaign that these guns are bad, something similar to what happened with the tobacco industry, that works. Well, there's an education piece. Right, because how, we see the precipitous drop in tobacco use as a result of introducing this to the public. And then they, that's how we need to change the dynamic of how people thinking. It's not just the removal of guns. That's just an an, that, that's an antiseptic and very monolithic. It doesn't work. It's a far more Well, we don't know. Strategy. We haven't tried that with the AR-15. That's the gun that's used in all these, yeah. uh, all these incidents, these mass shootings. Then why don't we we remove cars. We just had somebody try to run people over on the West Side Highway. We can, if we just spotlight the what's being the so tool. So you, you're saying you think AR-15 should be available to whoever wants it? I think that that's not the issue. It's not the guns. It's the ideology it's the behind gun. it. It's the gun. It's the gun. If we remove the guns, and I give you the example Nobody of what said, happened why, but in why England. But why does it? Why does it have to become this remove the guns argument? Why is it a question of? People need to, there needs to be restricted access to the guns. I totally agree. You have to be a agree. certain age to drive a car. I, I totally agree. If you have a drunk driving arrest, you can't get a, you can't I get totally a license. I totally agree that there should be backgrounds and restrictions, but when we look at just the removal of weapons in general, you're targeting the AR-15. There's numerous guns. People use Uzis, they use AK-47s, etc. And it goes back to, what is that ideology? How do we get the public to understand that this is not but something see, but that's there, sound but in But there's society. no dialogue that's... A, 
you can't even have a the dialogue, dialogue about it. The dialogue is what I mentioned to you with the education, that public service campaign to get that out there, to get people understanding this. Samuel what, Jackson. What's up? What are they educating the people? Don't don't go don't go buy an AR-15. What did they educate people in with the with the tobacco um, campaign? Don't smoke, it kills you, right? And look at the don't shoot and kill people. And it's one in the same. It, what it gets back to is we've had many. No, we've, with the we've had don't shoot. We've had push for peace. You know that. Since yeah, but but uh, we've how, had how, uh, we've had stop shooting. We've is, had so many violence. On what level is that? And I use like I said once again. You have to look at what worked. When something was a public state, a public emergency, or caused a public state of emergency, what worked? And that's why I use the tobacco campaign, because I hear people all the time, um, gun control, look at what happened in England, look at what happened in New Zealand. And the truth of the matter England, is... England, very it different not, culture. No, no, it did not... It did not produce a precipitous drop in the homicide rate. What you had was people. Yeah, but they had a low homicide rate to begin with. That's not a fair. Then people started stabbing one another. They've been stabbing. Well, the, what about the, it? What happened on the London Bridge not too long ago? Somebody tried to run somebody. It happens, and so it gets. People back are to always going to want to murder people. We're what we're talking but about I, is mass shootings involving children at a place where they're supposed to feel safe. And you Randy, have to target I, the ideology of why are people doing it. That's what we're talking that's about. That's what the antiseptic Randy, is. But. Uh, with those kids that came forth, they didn't even want to have a conversation about AR-15s. I mean, with, with these mass shootings happening, shouldn't we discuss everything? Shouldn't everything be on the table? I think everything these should kids, be on the table. These kids are and coming. And that's what I'm telling you. Okay, okay, it's going so, with guns, so, and it's far more to it than that. But, but at least you should discuss it. They voted not to even have a conversation about banning these, you're talking. You're talking about the state the legislature. Flo yeah, so Florida. I think that these kids. That's what they're talking about. There will be no change if we just keep talking about the so, issue. Talking about the issue. What changes are we really going to take? So, place? Dr. Randy, when you look at these kids, let, let, let's talk about. Let's talk about these teens. Everybody. I mean, myself. We were just. We were just so mesmerized by their by their passion, sure. by their clarity, sure. because it was one of those moments of emotional clarity where it was just like, we don't know what the solution is, but this is so wrong. We're better than this. This is we've got to be better than this as a country. This is just so wrong. It's like out of control. It's violent. It's it's just horrific. It's so anti-life. When you look at those students, though, mm -hmm. and as they come up against these roadblocks mm -hmm. and, and also this is kind of the first totally digital generation sure. where they've been digital since they've been babies mm -hmm. and they're used to everything happening instantly and you're talking about these stages of grief is this going to is this going to be healthy for them to you know be be embroiled in what's one of the most contentious issues of our country right now i think it is healthy initially but what happens is what happens next week two weeks later when the issue dies down and these kids, their voices aren't being heard. Youth voice, this is what makes me hopeful. Because this digital age that they're living in, they can they can bring people together in a, in a, a really big movement to actually maybe make some change happen. But if the adults are not listening, are not willing to even conversate, in a couple of weeks from now, the narrative shifts on social media, shifts on the news channels to something else, right, to then what else happens happened. to those voices? Now they have to go back to those schools. They have to complete their education in that, in that place that was very traumatic with no change actually taking place. And, that's, and that's, I think we failed our kids if that happens. Uh, definitely. In terms of the training, because there's a lot of schools, Pat, now that do this, the, the active shooter training, and very little kids, elementary school age kids, mm -hmm. learning, learning what to do. They're and required to do that. Yeah. Right. And there's some programs and there, there's some programs where they tell people throw stuff up in the air to distract the shooter and 
What do you think of these mm. programs? Uh, you know, it's it's a fine line. I mean, my, my children, you know, I have four children, uh, youngest being seven. Um, you know, I, I kind of, uh, I want her to live in a real world. So she knows, you know, about things that are happening. Um, I want her to be prepared as best as she could. No, no glory details, but prepared as best as she could. And, and one of the districts that I'm working with, they had sent out a memo to all the teachers uh, that if any of the children ask about it, uh, deny knowing anything about it and change the subject. Mm-hmm. And I feel that's the wrong approach. Um, 100% because they're going to go somewhere and see it on TV. I've seen many of those drills before, um, those active shooter drills in these schools. And you have two types of principles. You have the principle that's on board with a sustainment. Okay, we're going to do this and we're going to revisit this in three months. Right. And then you have the other principle that's like, let's just get this out of the way and I'm done with it. Let's and check this back off. Talk about it again. That's talk about the problem. It. Yeah. But the key even... is you have to marry law enforcement professionals in with educators. Yes. The collaboration of the two entities can need to converge on the topic. And it needs to be something that's continuous. And it needs to be evaluated yeah. after six month time frame. If you don't have a, pl- a place of evaluation, it goes by the wayside. Can I make a point about that? Of course, that, please. If we teach our kids math, science, language arts, and you have to have physical education, why don't we have a standard mental health education which is in the school as well? This is something that we could do right away. Right. Make that a make that a something that you have to have that education about. Why, and and at least at least give them a, a way to have a conversation, conversation about it. Or a course on gun violence. Speaking to these kids about the the issues, the propensity of danger involved with gun violence, and that goes with the education piece. The reinforcement that's over and over and over again sets in to the point where people say, hey, look, you know what, this is something worth thinking about. But in, term, in terms of the students themselves, mm-hmm. the, this idea that they have to deal with these types of things, you know, that they have to deal with shooting, should they even have to deal with it at, that, at a young age like elementary school? Because it's not, it's not like the threat is coming from some unknown place. You know, in, in all these cases, people were like, we had a feeling, we, you know, there were all the, again, all the warning signs were there. So why should all of the other students have their childhood you know, childhood marred by this. They shouldn't have to deal with it, but it's the reality we live in. And I think us as adults, we are, once again, I'm going to say, I think we're failing our young people. And they're looking at it like, what are you guys going to do? And when you march, when you're saying next month they're going to have this big rally and march, and everybody's going to mobilize and march for lives. And think about that. If people, the legislators aren't even willing to listen to them after that, it's very deflating, and you have to return back to school feeling like nothing has changed. What did we accomplish? What, what, what did we accomplish? So I think it's up to us, and I, I think we have to support them. At least their voice needs to be heard. We have to have the conversation, at least, Lisa. No, and, that, so. and that's, that's, that's a great point about those students, too, because that was one of the comments that, that uh, one of them made, mm-hmm. Emma Gonzalez. And she mm-hmm. said, very, you know, you, uh, you adults and politicians, not just the politicians, you have failed us, so mm-hmm. we have to be the ones to end this. But, yeah. you know, she's hopefully going to be going on to college and these other things so well people get in office right lisa so how does so people have the power to to vote you know and you got to look at that's why we need to teach kids and teach adults as well about um, how legislation it works and and informing them these these are the people you voted for and this is what they're saying in regards to mass school shootings and how to stop these I don't think you should I don't think we can look to the legislators anymore because if that was the case after Sandy Hook after Columbine there would have been changes so it's clear that the legislation has failed it's something that the professionals within the field need to coalesce well the legislators have failed right right, that's what I just said yeah it's clear that the like a national background check system you can use your credit card 
anywhere in America, anywhere it's, in the world. It's beyond that. But wait, you can use your credit card. There's data. There's a database. You can use obviously many of them. You can use your credit card anywhere around the world, and they know how much credit limit you what what your credit limit is. Whether the they're going to prove it or not. The background checks are Why necessary, there, and so are the mental health checks. But sure. we it shouldn't go back, be national. But, no, should no, be a national. But it goes check. back to what can we do on a local level local and that's level. where we're having these issues it's not so much as a national issue it's a local issue and from a local perspective Darren, it's a national you gotta hear issue me out and i can give you an answer our guns from it new york are coming coming from virginia but pennsylvania once again, florida even when that gun does get here how do we deal with it on a local level and it gets back to you need but to have why that collaboration why should it be one, between but wait shouldn't i can only help i can only answer it if you let me answer the question you have to have the practitioners on both the education side and the law enforcement side, they need to coalesce, and that's who develops the strategy. Because if you look to the federal go government to get it done, it's not going to happen. But what you're referring to is the iron pipeline, where we have guns that are coming I'm from Georgia, no, what I'm North to, Carolina, what and I'm they come to about, these, What come I'm to talking New York. about is common sense. Why not have a the system? The common sense comes in with the education. But the common sense in terms of the structures that we have that exist, Pat, like a national system for I think, I think we need a complete overhaul, a uh, combination of background checks, mental health uh, checks, and also follow-up. So basically, you're issuing in some of these states uh, a pistol permit or a registration, basically giving to the person and saying, see you later, mail a check-in in five years, two years when it's up. Right. I think a mandatory you know, office visit, a check-in, uh, analyzing any police reports, any domestic incidents that might have occurred that were, weren't caught um, you know, over the course of those two years before the next checkup uh, are key. And I think that's where the ball's being dropped is someone's getting this thing, they're basically going off to God knows where, nobody's uh, checking up on them, and they're basically free to do what they want and might have had you know, incidents that might have caused might have bought more guns in the meantime. Absolutely, in other states. But I agree. I think we have to, we can't rely solely on legislation because it takes too long and there's no movement. And then in the meantime, our kids are, are suffering and being hurt. So what we can do as educators, what we can do on the local on the level, ground. I agree with that. We do need to do something as much as we can do at that level. That's what mental health is about. That's what, you know, talking about educate mental health directly to the kids because we can get into the schools and have these conversations and that's what so, we so basically do. to go to what darren was saying about in terms of a public awareness campaign yes yeah that's, I agree that's with that. really effective why not why it, that's something that we could definitely make happen right away there doesn't have to be a lot of conversation or dialogue about that and why not do something like that if it's going to make even a little bit of difference it's worth it at this point darren who would do that who would do that Public awareness campaign. <laughs> at the forefront of it. But <laughs> it goes back to um, one of the things that I would recommend is Philip Morris was sued by tobacco owners. And what they had to do was they had to put out this public awareness campaign right. in connection to with smoking. Sure. I believe that the gun manufacturers such mm -hmm. as Colt, Smith & Wesson, etc., those are the people that you need to put the feet to the fire to and cause them to spend billions of dollars for this public awareness campaign. Um, a lot of it is, and also I think that they hold the level of accountability. In the past, these gun manufacturers have been sued over and over and they've won because they get countless amount of, amounts of dollars from the NRA. Right. But what happens is if you hold them accountable, then in one of, in one of the precautions that come out of these court um, cases would be, hey, look, you need to put forth as money. As part of the settlement. As, right. Like that. I, think to, that's, for an education. I think that was good. In addition to that, I think that the gun manufacturers should have a level of tracking to all of the firearms that they sell. Because so if a gun is sold to six or, or seven people. Right. How it's sold and also true or false, we, we tried to find out how many guns are actually in America and there's no 
production figures that are reliable that you can even get. people in the United States. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but in terms of the actual numbers. People, we have an excess of 360 guns, 360 million guns in the streets in New, um, of the United States. It could be many more than that because we don't really know the number. But uh, I want to thank all of you for being with us for this episode of Street Soldiers. Pat McCall, great to have you on. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Darren Porcher, great to have you thank with you. us. Thank you. Also, Dr. Randy Scanyers, thank you so much for thank being you. with us. Mm -hmm. We appreciate it. And remember, use your mind. It's your best weapon. I hope it's your only weapon. I'm Lisa Evers. Let's push for peace.